California has always been a sort of unsightly sibling to its southern relation. Sure, there was the Bay Area with its beautiful views, hip cafes, and legendary literary scene, but one would only need to drive 10 miles from the city to find oneself stuck in the middle of some desolate farm town. One of these wastelands is known colloquially as Mud Town, but to Adam Pena, he simply called it home. Stockton was established around the time of the gold rush, but the excitement of the area hit a full nosedive almost immediately afterwards. For Pena's family, this was perfectly fine, as they had enough excitement in the form of economic and criminal hardships in their previous home, Juarez, Mexico. They had fled the violence of the cartel-led streets in hopes of both providing better opportunities for their two sons and just plain staying alive. Fortunately for the Penas, their sons would both grow up to be healthy and successful young men. Adam's older brother, Marcos, led the way by earning a scholarship to the University of San Francisco, where he chose to study a pre-law program in hopes of pursuing his JD. While that was going on, Adam was working up a consistent sweat in his high school's weight room as he pursued making the varsity soccer team as a sophomore. For the fleeting moment, the Peñas had it all figured out, but they would learn quickly just how ephemeral that moment was fated to be. By Marcos's third year at USF, the stress of college life had begun to take its toll. The young man found that it would take a new level of focus and maturity to both enjoy the excitement of university life and maintain a stellar GPA so he could enroll in a proper law school. Like many of his peers, he wanted the best of both worlds and soon began to ingest improperly prescribed substances to do so. His reasoning was that this was a temporary practice that would dissolve as soon as he received confirmation that he had a spot in the JD program. Naturally, this was not the case. Not only did Marcos become addicted to the medication, but he found himself in use of various others to balance him out. Alcohol was also a big player in his digestive orgy, and after the introduction of just a teeny bit of cocaine, it did not take long for his academic career to spiral away from him and into the void. Adam could hardly believe what he was hearing from his brother, and he began to hear less and less from him. The situation became so dire that Adam convinced some of his friends to drive up to the city for the weekend and see the mess for himself. Arriving on the gorgeous campus, Adam immediately made his way to his brother's residence and found him whittling away at his assignments. Pleased, to say the least, his mood would shift almost immediately when he looked into his brother's eyes and saw the bloodshot remnants of an intense all-nighter. Marcos let his brother know that he was wrapping up a paper that was due in about 30 minutes, despite having weeks to finalize the assignment. Adam peeked over his shoulder, and in only a brief scan of the computer screen, he could make out a litany of spelling and grammatical errors that were sure to earn a piss-poor marking from the professor. Never one to be soft when times called for toughness, Adam found it somehow difficult to confront his brother in these dark times, and he instead left him to work, promising that they would meet up later to unwind. The brothers met up that evening and took an Uber with Adam's friends to a house party where the younger sibling was exposed to everything he feared. This was not a typical college party filled with alcohol and some light indulgences. 
There were felony grades of drugs abound, and everyone was partaking. The locale was more crack house than student gathering. Still having a hard time addressing the issue, the younger brother simply observed the surroundings. Just who exactly was making up this crowd that Marco saw himself a part of? The party was composed of the expected breed of harsh punk and traditional ne'er-do-wells. Everyone looked lost and almost as if they were ghosts just haunting the space. Adam finally addressed one of these glaze-eyed users and asked where he could score. Of course, he had no intention of purchasing drugs for himself. He simply wanted to understand how the substances make their way onto a distinguished college campus. Fortunately for him, the dealer was not hard to find. The next day, Adam tapped his buddies to pay this pusher a visit. He had sent a text to him and requested some product. Then they had set the meeting and it was all a go. Adam, like his brother, was big for his age and his friends weren't that much smaller. So the intimidation and interrogation that they would bestow upon the dealer would prove to be rather easily applied. The small criminal cowered under their harsh glares and the group backed him into the corner on sight, commanding that he tell them where he was getting the drugs. He revealed that his supplier was a man associated with the local bloods and that's all he knew, although he then kept squealing that the dealers were all supplied by gangs and those gangs get their stuff from cartels. He claimed it was the way it always worked. The group let the dealer go and took the information for what it was. The next day, Adam said goodbye to his brother, held his hug a little longer than normal, and told him to stay strong and he'd be in a better place before he knew it. Unfortunately, Marcos would drop out of his studies one month later, and from there, he would be by all means unreachable to his family. Heartbroken, Adam vowed to return to the bay and take out every one of the bloods that had gotten his brother hooked on their junk. But once he calmed down from that high, he realized how pure all that thought had been. Even if he could light up a hood like a Mexican Rambo, the cartels would just find other pushers. Crime would continue, and innocent people would always pay the price. Instead, the young man vowed to dedicate his life to being as much of a disruptor as he could. He continued excelling in his studies and told his parents that he wanted to work in law just like Marco had dreamed, only he wanted to enforce the codes instead of interpreting them. His father warned him of the dangers of that career and begged him to reflect more on his choice to be sure it was not just a reactionary or vengeful desire due to his brother's failings. Adam took his father's words to heart and realized that the old man was right. Adam could not be the change he wanted to see in this world working as a traditional city or county cop. No, he would have to dream bigger than that. So he wrapped up his high school career and began studying pre-law at Stanislaw State. Adam kept his head down and aced every exam, earning him an easy road to Humphreys College Lawrence Driven School of Law, where he would manage to do what his brother never could, earn his law degree. His parents, however, would find their joy shift to worry once again when Adam would reveal to them his next move. He would not go into a private practice, nor would he try to secure some government work. Adam Pena would apply to the place he could make the biggest difference as a special agent in the FBI. And right his parents were to worry, because here he was, tied to a chair in a darkened building, face bruised and bleeding, in a spot he'd never think to find himself. Finding a knack for infiltrating gangs of all levels as an undercover agent, he usually dealt with rivals and higher-ups threatening his safety. Now, almost assuredly about to take his final breaths, he looked up and saw four city policemen in the midst of enacting his murder. Adam had begun making his way into the gang scene back in his first assignment in Sacramento. After graduating from Quantico, he was fortunate enough to be sent back to his home state and immediately groomed to be an on-field contact with cartel-related crimes. 
operating under the alias Victor Garza, Agent Pena was the perfect fit for undercover work in the nastiest of city gangs, and he quickly rose through the ranks to head a particularly powerful sect in the Sacramento area. Never afraid to receive garish tattoos or get his hands rather dirty, even by FBI standards, to bring information to the agency, Pena rose to such incredible acclaim that the big guys in D.C. made the decision to route him down to Southern California, where cartels were beginning to make rather outrageous holds in the Los Angeles suburbs, mostly through the bribing of corrupt police officers. Corruption in law enforcement being a hot-button issue of the politics of the time, Garza's supervisor set it up and the gang lord was sent into the slums of Baldwin Park to begin his work climbing up the ladder of the Puro 626 community. With a little help from the FBI, the ATF, and the DEA, that did not take long. In fact, there was only one agency that gave him any problems whatsoever, greater problems than even the rival gangs themselves, the Gap Unit of the Baldwin Park Police Department. It's been said that one should never claim things cannot get worse, because God hears everything, and they will take that statement as a challenge. Perhaps during his time as shot caller of the Puros, Garza had previously thought to himself that the Gap cops couldn't be any more pesterous, and by that previous logic, Detective Naik was now removing the top quarter of his left ear with a scalpel. The undercover agent did his best to maintain his composure, favoring the digging in of his heels in a low-pitched hum as opposed to the more common kicking and screaming. The temptation to reveal his true identity was very real, and he knew it would save what was left of his head's cartilage-rich accessories, but he was too good of an agent to give up that easily. If they did keep him alive, he could testify and put everyone in this unit away for good, thus securing a huge win for his agency and his country. All of this, and if he did reveal his FBI background, they might just silence him anyway. By all means, his only option was to continue to play his role, take these strikes for the team, and pray they would be smart enough to know when to stop. Yandi was a doctor in Bangladesh, can you tell? Joked Girardi as Naik placed a piece of ear on an adjacent steel plate. If we had a nurse or resident doing that, it would have really hurt. Garza kept his eyes forward into the darkness, doing his best to disassociate from his ear trauma, as well as the bruises and swelling on his face, and of course, the internal bleeding that was no doubt occurring after, upon arrest, he was tossed onto the ground and promptly kicked by every officer in descending order of rank. Girardi broke this concentration by walking over and getting right in his face. Everyone in this room knows how this ends, but you get to pick the schedule. We can spend hours brushing up on surgical techniques, maybe some target practice, who knows? Or, you can tell me who pulled the triggers, and you shed this mortal coil with a nice, clean exit. The lieutenant backed away and resumed his place behind the victim. Doesn't matter to me. We'll find the trigger mannered men at some point. You talk or you don't. We'll get over it. With a couple heavy breaths to regain his composure, Garza began. I didn't. have nothing to do with your detective. I... Always stayed out of your way. Only one I want dead is Verde. Not being the answer Girardi wanted, he nodded to Naik to keep going, and the scalpel was again raised and brought down onto the bleeding wound to extract another chunk. This time Garza did scream. I'm telling the truth. I don't give a shit about you guys. I know you're not going anywhere. What's the point of taking one of you out like that? No one can run in the cities with you guys pissed off at them. 
I gave up trying to make sense of your guy's low IQ moves a long time ago, buddy, Girardi responded as Naik added a new piece of flesh to the collection. Even if what you're saying is true, Streets would say a big player like you knows something. Why don't you start the conversation? Whoever did the drive-by at Lagos wasn't Puros. I'm telling you, we're on our own thing. Gang war don't mean anything to me or Verde. We need our troops together before we can start doing shit to other sets. Then who did it? You telling me there's someone out there smarter than you? Following cops and setting up hits? I don't know! Lago's dumb as shit. Probably called the hit on his own place as soon as you guys pulled up. Girardi took a beat. Theo had said the same thing, but hearing it come out of another ganglord's mouth gave it that much more weight. The more he thought about it, the more the move made sense. Guards alert Lago that cops want to talk. He already knows they're being investigated by MAPD, and Verde is gearing up for a move against Garza. He could call his own guys in to spray some lead. All the better if some got stuck in his own soldier. No one would suspect his crew of lighting up their own safe house. Instead, they would just start making up stories and get everyone on edge, including the BPPD. The logic was just flawed enough to be that of a pea brain like Lago. It would also be the easiest explanation in terms of the investigation. If this story held up, the situation was a lot less complex than they had thought. Girardi stepped aside and told Naik and Penley to see if they could get eyes on Lago. In the meantime, he and Johansson would continue the conversation with Mr. Garza. Detective Desarian was too good at her job to pretend that Garza was being interrogated in a manner consistent with ACLU standards. The Gap unit had all the reason to believe he was a cop killer, the brains behind the death of their brother, and they had that belief because of her detective work. If Girardi went as far to complete his vengeance and kill Garza in return, whether he was innocent or not, his blood would be on her hands. Thoughts like these were swarming the deputy's head as she sat passenger in the FBI vehicle, riding like lightning to the BP police station. Dilly had tried to call police aid Gabe for more information in the interim, but he had been out of reach since their meeting earlier that afternoon. She even carefully tried calling the station itself, but he wasn't answering those phones either. It appeared as if she would have to wait until they arrived at the station and met up with Chief Ardalis to extract any more information as to the whereabouts of Girardi and his gang. Since she had time to ponder, she began to run through the details of the murder case again with Agent Culver confirming that both Wally Pimento and Victor Garza had nothing to do with the ambush, she had to release her suspicions and hope that through the clarity, a new direction would pop up. She thought again about the large 45 ACP round and the use of a suppressor, which meant that it was someone who was intent on a quick death for his victim. The gaps began to emerge when she thought about who could have known that they would be at Theo's house that day. Unless it was just someone snatching at the opportunity to kill a cop, which seemed unlikely. Perhaps she was seeing this all the wrong way. What if it had nothing to do with the gang wars or positional strategy? What if the killer wasn't hunting cops, but rather Hanover McGill specifically? But who would want McGill dead? Dilly thought back to her time in the station and tried to remember if he had said anything about having some kind of long-standing beef or even disagreement with any of the big players in gangland, but she didn't have the experience to connect the names. Call Gabe again. I don't understand how a guy with the lowest rank at that station is all the most important info, Culver spewed. Dilly dialed and once more heard the voicemail message. 
Jesus. Girardi probably got to him and he's climbing up now. We're going to have to tell them who Garza is ASAP. That's the end of this operation. We better get major convictions for this. Well, what I'm finding is that a lot of these gang members are more than willing to give detailed info on Girardi and his crew. Coming in as FBI with the nice suits and fancy cars shouldn't be that hard to cut deals once he's in custody. You get enough guys to turn, you might even be able to get someone like Pendley or even Johansson to turn federal witness, whoever's the cleanest. At the suggestion, Culver turned to the deputy and stared for a beat. I can't get a make on you, Desarian. Unsure how to take that statement, she furrowed her brow and kept the stare until he turned back toward the road. Guess I can trust you, though. You already know too much. A major part of the plan is to turn Johansson. He comes from a line of LAPD royalty, and we think he's kept his hands relatively clean, i.e. no murders. He'd be the best shot. Rather pleased at her sharp conclusion and how it had synced beautifully with FBI strategy, Daly added, makes sense. What it is, Culver continued, and I mean this with all due respect, but I can't tell if you're smart or stupid. You come up with things like that, but you also waltz right into obvious traps like at Lagos and Garza safe house. I don't know, maybe you're just green. You still see too much of the good in these kinds of people. Though rightfully offended at the remark, Dilly found herself stuck on one part of Culver's assessment in particular, how she had walked into multiple ambushes. She wasn't so concerned about her problematic issue with trusting, or perhaps her low intelligence, but rather on the pattern that was becoming more and more clear. She immediately pulled up Chief Ardalis' number in her phone and dialed. The chief answered quickly, and Dilly wasted no time in asking, Why isn't Gabriel Lomelli a cop? Back in the gap torture chamber, the pool of blood underneath Garza had only expanded. The undercover FBI agent was now missing his entire left ear and the larger tip of his nose. Yet, he was still committed to keeping his cover. Girardi and Johansson stood out of earshot to discuss what the next move would be. Finding that this banger had a lot of balls to keep quiet this long. Either that, or he was telling the truth and he didn't know anything to give up. This is taking much longer than I thought. I can't stay here all night, Girardi began. Think it was someone else? Joe asked. Could be. I don't know what the hell happened, Joe. These guys used to break like that. It's like they're getting tougher every round. Or maybe. I'm just getting too old for this game. So what do we do? Girardi looked up at Joe to communicate that there was only one thing left to do. And it was his if he wanted it. We could drop him off back in his hood. But he might feel a little salty after our evening together. And it wouldn't be that hard to run to the feds. Think he'd do that? He'd be run out of the poodles for spilling the cops. He's going to lose this gang anyway. Remember his file? He already had to start over from his runs up north. He won't be scared to do it again. But if he's not involved with McGill, he's behind a laundry list of shit that put us all in danger over the years. Guy's going to end up dead sometime soon. All we'd be doing is saving the lives he's yet to corrupt. I'm not going to spend any time crying over it. Joe's heart was slowly increasing its rate as he dared to ask, What do we do with the body? Leave it. We're in the middle of nowhere. No one will find it until he can barely be ID'd, and even if it is, no one in the PD is going to take the time to look up details on why someone rubbed out a washed-up banger. The discussion began to give Joe flashbacks to one of his earliest memories with the Gap Cops when he witnessed Naik kill a Bolenz kingpin. How foolish of him to think that would be as bad as it would get. 
He looked at Girardi and confirmed that his boss wanted him to enact the execution. Unable to believe he would be asked to do such a thing, he leaned in and asked for more clarification. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do, Joe, but you're going to be heading up the Gap unit when this ends, at least to start. The streets get word of a rumor that you took out Garza, thus granting power to Verde. You get fear from the little guys and support from the big ones. Your choice. Joe took a quick beat to weigh the consequences. Being a cop was so much more than keeping bad guys away from good guys, and he was learning just how much more it entailed every single day with this unit. As usual, everything Girardi said was true. Garza was a scumbag. How many had he killed? How many will he kill? Surely, Joe would need to have the conviction to put down a monster right here and now. If not, was he even worthy of wearing that badge? He pulled his Glock and looked up at Girardi for one last green light. The third generation officer then took steps toward the target. The poor guy was hovering in his consciousness, allowing his shock to numb the pain of his mutilated face. From what Joe could surmise, he was probably praying for death at the moment. Joe was his angel of mercy. He lifted the gun and aimed it right at the back of his drooping head. There was no turning back from this one. One bullet, and he was a killer. Some might call him a cleanser, others a cold-blooded murderer. No matter the opinion, the act would remain. In actuality, the act would never occur. Joe suddenly lowered his weapon and took a big gulp of air, realizing he just couldn't do it. There was policing, and then there was creative crime fighting, but shooting a man in the back of the head was something else. A line had to be drawn, and he drew it. Unfortunately for Special Agent Adam Pena, Francis Girardi's lines were a bit less merciful. Inside the Baldwin Park Police Station, the action was rather light, as was common at this ungodly hour. A few admins paced the floor with files, while others attended to the work on the desk. This peaceful contrast was shifted immediately when a plainclothes Chief Ardalis prowled in through the front door, pistol first. If that weren't enough, she was followed by both Detective Desarian and Agent Culver, both armed as well. Anyone have eyes on Gabe? asked the Chief to a flurry of headshakes. Last time he was seen... A desk jockey remarked that he had just been at the front, maybe ten minutes ago, then pointed in the direction of the hallway. Ardalis let her backup know that she would check the back lot, then assigned Culver to the evidence and records room and Dilly to the equipment room. Outside, Ardalis made her way carefully amidst the cars, keeping a keen eye on the shadows and what she could see through the windows. In the records room, Culver immediately recruited the resident officer to draw his weapon and help him complete his search of the area, with all of its sharp, blind corners. In the equipment room, Dilly made her way deeper toward the back, which held the higher caliber weapons. All three searched with heightened care, being absolutely sure that they would not be caught flat-footed for someone who had already spilt blue blood. Naturally, it was the original outsider who would find the target. Detective Desarian continued to comb through the walls of weapons and tactical gear until she saw movement in the corner. Sure enough, it was none other then police aide Gabriel Lomelli, coolly loading up a 12-gauge. Gabe, put the gun down, Dilly uttered. Detective Desarian, the aide spoke while continuing to pack the long gun. What brings you back to the station? 
I thought you were persona non grata. Gabe, put the gun down and keep your hands where I can see them. Oh, jeez. You make it sound like I'm doing something wrong. I always make sure these things are loaded for the officers coming onto their ship. He turned around and cocked the shotgun with force as Dilly did everything in her power to keep her finger off the trigger. Put it down, slowly, she said as she noted his vest and sidearm, two things she had never seen him wear. You asked me the other day why I wasn't a cop, and I told you that we all have our roles. Doesn't really matter how much we want them, but we must fulfill their responsibilities. It was actually Girardi who taught me that. Of course I wanted to be a cop. I dreamed of being on the BP force since I was a little kid. Our Dallas told me everything, Dilly confirmed. Yeah, that's why I still volunteer. She called me the day after I got the discharge. I was a mess. I had done the Explorer program. I already knew most of the brass. Scored highest on most of the exams. There's nothing else I ever wanted so... So badly. Go through the interviews, the physical tests, the psych analysis, just to have one doctor say, with no feeling at all, that I'm a liability because of a heart murmur that I was born with. Just like that. No more dreams. I never had a real shot. Yeah, I was crying all night. Locked my door. Thought about maybe just driving my car off a cliff, because why not? Then the next morning, the station's number comes up, and it's the chief. I sit right up, and she tells me that she heard the news, and she was sorry to hear about it. She tells me I had all the makings of a good cop, and she was sad to know that it would never happen. Then she offered me the spot as a police aide because she wanted me to be a part of the department in any way I could. My depressive episode snapped like that. I started volunteering, got to be a cherished part of the force, and everything seemed okay. It wasn't what I dreamed of, but I couldn't complain. Unlike some. Gabe, I need you to put that gun down. Please, I know your problems with McGill, and we'll deal with everything right now, but nothing good's going to happen with that in your hands. Oh, Dilly, if you only knew what I almost did to you. G was not happy, and you were putting him in some bad situations. I know about the setup at the warehouse. Oh, that was nothing. I had you in my sights many, many times. You don't know these streets like I do. Girardi said to leave you alone, though. So I let it go. If you listen to Girardi so much, why did you kill Hanover? Dilly asked, allowing her curiosity to overcome her fear of his weapon. Because Hanover McGill was never worthy of that badge. Gabe's teeth grit as his hand tensed over the gun's barrel and his finger entered the trigger guard. Do you know what it was like to have his smart mouth running about how he'd rather be in the fire department all day long? He had the greatest job in the world, and he just stumbled upon it. Then, he had the, the goal to bash it the entire time. He even made detective and got assigned to the Gap unit. Jesus Christ, why would they pick him? It would have been a hundred times the cop he was. Noticing that she had hit the sorest of spots, she again asked him to place his gun down. No! 
I'm not listening to you anymore. G even gave him a nickname, Fireman. And when he teased me, Gerardi would laugh. What did he say? He used to call me the secretary. Hanover always made me do his reports and anything else he was too lazy to do. He never even wanted this job. And yet, I'm the one God gave the bum heart. Well, better a bum heart than an ungrateful one. I always did the most work I could. I don't care if I had a gun or a badge. I served the community. And I had the officer's backs. He never did. When... When G told me that he was grooming him to take over the gap, I couldn't let it happen. I knew you guys were going to the Cinco house, and I knew G was being extra careful, and if he would let one guy stay back to look out, it would be the fireman. Gabe's eyes dropped as tears began to fall. Dilly lowered her weapon and placed it into her holster. Beginning to understand, she wasn't speaking to a grown man holding a loaded assault weapon. She was speaking to a forgotten child. You knew the war was coming, and they'd assume it was a banger. I used a big bullet. I looked up what would be the best, and I bought the right gun. I didn't want him to suffer, but he couldn't take over after Girardi. And because of you, that looked like it might be sooner than it was supposed to be. Dilly's heart sank as his anger directed toward her. She hid her fright and instead softly asked him to hand her the gun. Gabe, no one in that unit is ever going to come back to the force. I'm sorry that all this happened to you, but if you really want to serve the people of Bowman Park, just like a real cop, you need to give yourself up and help us find the gap detectives before they hurt anyone else. Do you understand? I can't give them up. Everything I did, I did for them. Those are my brothers. I respect that, but cops don't work for other cops. They work for the people of the city. To protect and serve, right? More people will get hurt if you let Girardi keep making trouble. If you know where he is, you can still be that hero. This might be your last chance. The police aide looked up into the deputy's deep brown eyes and felt the immediate comfort for which he had sought for so long. I can still be a hero after everything I did? Of course. A wise man once asked if evil was something you are or something you do. And I think it's the second one. And the same goes with good. You did some bad, but you can still do a lot of good. Handing me that gun is a start. After a big gulp, Gabe looked at the weapon, and with another look into the motherly eyes of Dilly, he handed it over. Thank you. I'm going to put these cuffs on you now, okay? Then we'll go talk to the chief, and you'll help us find Girardi before he gets hurt. Sound good? Gabe nodded and turned around, allowing Dilly to put him in cuffs and remove the pistol on his hip. She put a hand on his shoulder and again let him know it would all be okay. Do you need the vest? The perp asked. You actually need that, at least until we make it out of the station, advised the deputy, knowing full well that although she had found a scrap of mercy for the cop killer, the other uniforms in the station may not be as forgiving. Once more, Detective Zarian sat shotgun as Agent Culver sped down the dark BP streets, lights and siren on, and followed by a cohort of SUVs. 
After Dilly had handed over Gabe to some deputies to process and hold at the industry station, he had handed her his cell phone, the best means of communication with Girardi. From the text lists, she saw that the Gap unit were holding Garza at a warehouse up in the northwest border of the city, and considering that the last message was sent over one hour ago, the agents made haste. Unfortunately, all was for naught, because when they arrived at the address, they found the Gap cops had been long absent. Even worse, Special Agent Adam Pena had been left to the rats, lying with his head slumped, still tied to the chair. The agents breached the building with Dilly, and once they cleared it, they made the confirmation. He had been tortured extensively, then someone shot him in the back of the head. And if that were not enough, his tongue had been removed as a highly ironic attempt to make it look like the work of a banger who murdered the leader for speaking to police. The agent had been committed to his undercover work all the way until the end, and he had paid the ultimate price to bring about an obstacle to the police corruption and gang activity in a city that had looked on him as one of the most despicable criminals in its network. Immediately, Agent Culver called in the murder and activated a perimeter lockdown, an official APB for murder suspects Girardi, Penley, Naik, and Johansson. Ask him where he's at, ordered the commander. I can't. I've read through pages of text and he never asks specifics. We have to be very careful with how we text, or just pray he reaches out and doesn't call. God damn it, my agent was just flayed alive and his killers are running loose. I don't care if the cop killer didn't ask specifics, just get a location on Girardi. By now used to the explosions of her new partner, Dilly took a beat to respond. No one's going to answer or show until they have who they think killed McGill, and they're not going to find it. All we can do is patrol the perimeter. The APB is out and there's no way all these agencies come up empty. Even if they go into lockdown, they can't hide forever. Culver shook his head at the claims, knowing the deputy was right about all of them. He instructed an agent to hand her the keys to a vehicle so she could cover more ground, with the clear instruction that anything that comes through that phone should come right to him. Though still not her inimitable challenger, the Chevy Tahoe did have a rather comfortable seat and some kick off the throttle, especially when compared to the garbage her own agency had previously pawned off on her. The deputy buckled up and set off onto her search, being sure to keep that cell phone close by. Officer Penley offered an obnoxious yawn that he knew Detective Naik would notice. The latter had been strictly against stopping at a convenience store for an oversized Red Bull, claiming that they needed to wrangle McGill's gunmen as soon as possible, and it would be a sin against their loyalty to their fallen brother to stop the investigation under any circumstances. Penley argued that they needed to be sharp to police properly, and he had stopped for an energy drink run tons of times with the late McGill, so it was essentially a tribute to him. The higher rank shut down the argument, and thus, the lethargic police continued to their next stop. The two pulled up to the apartment complex right in the midpoint of the narrow street and exited the vehicle as quietly as possible. Nike began, just above a whisper. His apartment doesn't have any lights on. When I get the lock open, we'll go in, as quietly as possible, straight to his room. I'll tape his mouth, and you hold him down. From there, you bring the car around and then help me get him in. Got it? With the plan laid out as such, Naik began picking the lock. It took him about 45 seconds, and being the pro that he was, he tried the handle and found that the deadbolt wasn't engaged. Slowly and carefully, he opened the door and crept his way inside, followed by Pendley. Though pitch black, the door had let in just enough light to expose a figure in the living room. Right as Naik went to reach for his pistol, the lights came on, and both gap cops froze. 
Standing in front of them were four FBI agents, sidearms already drawn. Dilly's phone buzzed with a text from Culver confirming that her messages from Gabe's phone had just brought in Pendley and Naik, meaning that only Girardi and Johansson remained unapprehended. The deputy took great pleasure in the turning of tables she had enacted on the two who were just lazy enough to not carry files with them and thus needed to reach out to who they assumed was Gabe for address information on Lago's current safe houses. Dilly relished the opportunity to direct them right into a trap like they had done to her multiple times in the past weeks. The drawback was that she knew if they had reached out to Gabe instead of Girardi for that information, it meant the lieutenant could not be reached and had likely ditched his phone. Thus, he could not be traced nor contacted in any circumstance. She realized it would not make much sense to keep prowling the empty streets in hopes of finding someone who was almost assuredly already tucked away in his own safe house. There was really no chance of the final two perps emerging any time before morning, and it seemed the wisest choice was to grab some sleep and get back to the manhunt when the sun was up. Then something hit her. She realized that Gabe had handed her his phone of his own volition, and even though he had not given her clear permission to search its contents, the line was murky. There was also the fact that no one would ever know if she checked it for clues, unless she did find something, then she could just clarify permission from Gabe and all would be well. Already displaying the creative policing made famous by the target of her manhunt, Dilly worried if she was beginning the first strike against her integrity as a Leo. But the more she considered it, the more she believed she was tapping into her higher instinct, and a good detective found clues wherever they hid. She trusted herself enough to push the limit in this circumstance, and began checking the other text conversations, emails, and even pictures. Doing her best to be brief and ignore anything not related to the case, she continued to scroll. Naturally, Gabe was not an idiot and neither was Girardi, so the odds of finding something that could point her in the latter's direction were rather low. A few more goes begat nothing of note, and she was ready to put an end to her privacy violation, until she stumbled upon something in his contact list. There was Baldwin Park Police Department, with its very own speed dial assignment, and along with that, there was another station, his local force, Monrovia PD. Dilly then dialed up the industry station and asked to speak to the prisoner. She had one more question for him. The fleet of FBI SUVs made their way down Huntington Drive, followed closely by a pair of tactical units. Making their way from the other direction were a handful of LASD units, and the Monrovia boys were already on site, carefully and quietly evacuating adjacent apartments. Inside of police aid Gabe's apartment, the man of the hour sat in the lazy boy, stoic and pensive, as Johansson did his best to hide his anxious tics. Girardi had stopped on the hour previous and dialed up Naik on a payphone to touch base, only to make contact with a federal agent on the other line that had a rather spicy threat ready for the lieutenant. Time had run out, and both knew that the FBI units would find them eventually, and once they arrived, the standoff would officially begin. And then, who knows what would happen. No words were spoken in the interim. Neither knew what to say anyway. They could only hope that Naik and Pendley at the very least found something on McGill's killer before they got picked up. They would all have their days in court, but if it meant the bastard who killed McGill was on schedule too, then at least they'd have something to celebrate in this mess. Girardi wondered if Gabe had turned on him, which was highly out of character. Ironically, he couldn't think of anyone less likely to betray him. 
The truth was, it didn't matter how they got hands on his detectives. They did, and Joe and he were next. He was a veteran cop, and he knew very well how these things go. It's always the same. The perps have their pick of two choices, give up peacefully or ride high until the very end. Even though he had seen both often enough, he found himself unable to decide which one he would choose. The lieutenant leaned over and looked at Johansson, nearly porcelain with his oily, pale complexion. Poor guy was on his last drop of composure and was doing everything he could to stay tough for his boss. The camel's back broke once he heard the helicopters. Joe leaned forward to try to get a peek out of the window, revealing his sweat-soaked back. Joe, began Girardi, it's going to be okay. No matter what happens, we'll all get through this. I trust you, G. I do. I know it's going to get nasty, but you always had the answers. Girardi hit his instincts to wince at that statement. He may have had the answers before, but in the past few months, he had felt that ability dwindle all the way until the present, where he found himself clueless. Instead, he gave his detective a nod and turned his gaze back toward the floor. Francis Girardi, Leslie Johansson, you are being placed under arrest for the murder of Special Agent Adam Pena. Exit the apartment with your hands up. It was not so much the amplified voice that had shaken the pair, but rather the knowledge that they were being arrested for the murder of an FBI agent. All of a sudden, the furious fed on the other end of Girardi's call to Naik made a lot more sense. The leader tried to conjure any connection to the name Adam Pena, but he kept coming up empty. He had killed a lot of people, all with differing levels of just cause. But Pena must have been someone recent. The only person he could think of was obviously Garza, but that could only mean that the gang lord was actually undercover. He began to think back to his dealings with the boss. He was obscenely obstinate in his work with him. Garza never wanted to cut deals with a Gap unit, and he seemed to be disgusted by him on a personal level. Most ganglords kept their own hands clean, so that part didn't stand out, but he also remembered how he sort of just appeared on the scene, supposedly from the Sacramento area. He had no background on him outside of his criminal and jail records from up north. Those could easily be forged for an undercover agent, and it would absolutely slip past him, because why would he ever think the FBI would be so concerned with the little gang activity that still existed in Baldwin Park? That's when Girardi realized. All at once, the gravity of his life's work hit him, and it came in like a freight train. The FBI had sent in an undercover agent to pin him. This was all so much worse than he had deluded himself into believing. The agency must have knowledge of murders, arms deals, drug trafficking and untold amounts of corruption that he had been a part of. And above it all, he had been the one to kill that agent. Before he could come to terms with this reality, he addressed his partner. You ready, Joe? Visibly shaking, Johansson nodded and took a deep breath before standing and wiping his sweaty palms on his jeans. Girardi stood up to meet him. He put a hand on his shoulder and began, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for everything. I started this whole thing, and I pulled you all into it. Gee, that's not... No. It's the truth. And I want you to tell them that, Girardi's voice firmed. I want you to take any deal you can get. Don't worry about me. I got a lawyer lined up, and the union will help, but don't be stupid and try to stick by my story. I want all you guys to pin everything on me. Understand? No way. I'm not gonna... Look! 
Prison's hard for cops. You're going to want to do as little time as possible. And if you can make any deal to stay out, make it. It's only fair. Joe knew not to argue, but his face conveyed that he would never betray his lieutenant like that. He was hurt even at the suggestion. You gotta promise me, Joe. Promise me you'll take the deals. This is my last order to you as your commanding officer, understand me? Joe looked deep into Girardi's eyes and saw his words validated. He affirmed his promise and Girardi wrapped him in a big hug, squeezing him with a little extra warmth that let him know this would be their final embrace. Okay, so keep your hands up and move slowly. Don't talk to anyone until your lawyer and union rep get there, okay? Joe took one step and realized that Girardi was not following. The lieutenant then clarified that he wasn't quite ready. Gee, I'm not leaving you alone for those feds. They think you killed one of them, Joe pleaded. Girardi stood firm and pointed at the door, silencing any more lip from the lower-ranking officer. He then added, One last thing. Give me your gun. Detective Azarian stood behind the wall of FBI vehicles, doing her best to see into the apartment that was being highlighted by the spotlights. Agent Culver stood close, just as anxious. Both froze up as the door cracked, and out emerged Detective Johansson, hands clasped over his head. The two looked on as a pair of tactical agents approached him and promptly placed cuffs on his wrist, then led him out of the active scene. Francis Girardi, come out with your hands up. You are surrounded and we will breach if you do not give yourself up freely. Culver leaned over and informed Dilly. Monrovia PD cleared the spaces. He shouldn't have more than maybe a 12-gauge, a couple pistols. We're going to have to breach. Dilly could only imagine the chaos that an FBI breach would render. Not only was Girardi a maniac and probably hoping for a final blaze of action, but the agents breaching knew he took down one of their own, so they may not be so quick to bring him in unscathed. She feared what she saw as the only way to proceed, but she went ahead anyway. No. Let me go in. What? Absolutely not. He might want to take agents out, but he'll consider it a gift if he gets to get you on a memorial. You started all of this. Yeah, I know, so let me finish it. Culver shook his head with the heaviest sigh yet. He barely knew Dilly, but the little time they had spent together let him know that not only was she serious but she was probably right. She did know the perp better than anyone in that scene. Staring into those increasingly annoying, yet still dazzling eyes, he motioned for an agent. Can you get Detective Desarian a vest, please? A big one. Girardi had since positioned his chair facing the door. Having flipped over the other couch to serve as a poor man's cover, the lieutenant was clearly ready for a fight. He found it odd that the next noise he heard was a knock at the door. Following this was a turn of the knob and a cracking of the entrance. Pistol aimed over his cover, Girardi was set to bring about what was probably the end to not only his career, but his life. Once more, he was surprised to see an LASD star emerge from the small opening. Although, he was not surprised that it was being held by a hand with perfectly manicured pink nails. Lieutenant, it's me, shouted the deputy freezing the perp inside. Don't shoot. As odd as it may have felt, her voice brought him comfort. Outside of his detectives, Gabe or Ardalis, it was probably the only other person in the world who would understand his plight over the past weeks. He dropped his weapon and shouted for her to come in. 
It's just me. No one else is coming, I promise, she said as she slowly walked in, arms still raised. Was this part of my sentence, the target joked, letting Dilly know she didn't have to be so nervous and he wouldn't hurt her. Did you guys get Joe? Yeah, he's good. Naik and Pendley, too. You might like this bit, but I texted them with Gabe's phone and sent them into an ambush. Although, there was little chance they'd get hurt, contrary to what you guys did to me. Yeah, sorry about that. We were trying to survive. I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but... It's been a rough few weeks, D. Moved by the alphabetic nickname, Dilly continued, Can I sit? Girardi motioned for her to grab her seat of choice, then left his gun on the table and grabbed one of his own. You know what I'm going to ask, right? She began. And you know that I can't do that. I think you don't want to, but you can. And you should. Garza was undercover for the feds. I'm guessing they're going to track that bullet to your gun. Yup. And that's why I can't come out there. There's no future for me. It was my own damn fault. But fact still remains. I'm a cop killer now. Even with everything else they'll get me for, that'll be my legacy. That is not going to be your legacy. You'll always be known as the guy who ran the elite BP Gap unit. The guy who chased almost every gang out of that city. The critics and virtue signalers will always find ways to diminish that, but the real cops will know. We'll remember what you did, and everything you sacrificed to do it. Girardi was clearly in a state of shock as he listened to Dilly's spiel. At the word sacrifice, he could only think of Hanover McGill. That was sacrifice. You guys get anywhere with the McGill murder? Oh, we got him. Girardi's head whipped up at the quick response. How? Who? Dilly grimaced at the questions, realizing that her hope that she would not have to be the one to tell him was officially kaput. Well, Agent Culver told me that Garza had nothing to do with it and Pimento was a dead end. He didn't tell me why, but I started thinking instead about how maybe it was someone who specifically wanted McGill dead, not just any cop or a gap cop. No shit. Was it a detective? Close. Dilly could see in the 54-year-old's eyes that glimmer of excitement that came in any detective's gaze as they approached that aha moment. The sensation was heightened by the fact that this was very personal to the lieutenant, and he was about to find out just how much more personal the whole affair really was. Next, I thought it had to be someone who knew you guys were going to be at Theo's, and that only left a few suspects who would have no motive whatsoever, until I learned more about one. Um, I have to do this, but come with me and I'll tell you the rest? Girardi immediately lost that glimmer and sat back in his chair. I don't need to know that bad. If you're trying to go out with a bang, you'll never know. Maybe I don't deserve to know. Okay, fine. Are you ready? Girardi again moved in close to here. Did you know about Gabe's medical condition? Yeah, the murmur. That's why he never joined the force. Uh-huh. Birth defect meant he could never join you guys for real. So imagine how he felt when McGill ran around that station mouthing off about how he'd rather be a fireman. Then think how he felt when you told him you were grooming McGill to be the next Gap CO. Girardi once more sat back in his chair as he pieced it all together. Wait, wait, wait. Gabe? Gabe did it? He confessed a few hours ago. Oh my god, murmured Girardi as the freight train that carried about twice the load of the previous came speeding up on him. I told Gabe we would be at Theo's. 
And I told him how much I liked McGill. I said the words, he's like a son to me. Oh my God. He stood up, wiping his bald skull with his sweaty hands. And Gabe? He's taking the full murder charge? Yeah, death penalty's on the table. God damn it! Girardi screamed as he punched a massive hole in the drywall with almost no effort. I did all of this. Stupid kid's gonna get the needle for killing one of my best detectives, and it's all because of me. All my cops are gonna be behind bars. Full access to those monsters we put away. Gangs are gonna run rampant in this city. It's all my fault. Girardi then took out another chunk of wall in frustration. Gilly's radio went off at the sound, and she let Culver know she was okay. Then she continued. Gee, it's all over now. We gotta move on, though. The best thing you can do is give yourself up, and no one else will get hurt. I had it all figured out. I had the gang shackled. They couldn't do anything without me knowing about it. It took me decades to do that. And I couldn't leave it alone. I had to take something for myself. Like they owed me something. The banger should pay me for the privilege of keeping their little soldiers alive and wealthy. It got so... complicated and perfect. Then... Then it all came down. And it didn't even come down on me. I wish it would have just got me. But it got everyone else. Literally everyone else. And they all got it worse. Jesus. I know deep down you're a good cop. Lots of people at your station know that. You made some bad mistakes, but we still know the good you did. This city appreciates it, whether they understand or not. It was all my fault. I'm telling you, D. I don't want anyone else in court for what I did. Do you understand me? Yes, but the DA's gonna file charges how he sees fit. And this is national now, so God damn it, promise me my cops won't do time. I can't promise that, G. There's a good shot Joe's clean, but Naik has alleged murders tied to him. Shit. You know he was just a kid from a poor town in Bangladesh? What the hell did he do to deserve running into a guy like me, huh? Gee, you need to calm down for a sec. Just come with me and we'll figure it all out. We can talk to the lawyers about how you'll cop to everything in exchange for lighter sentences for your guys. If anyone can make a deal, it's you. Girardi slowed his pacing and looked over at the deputy. This pretty little Armenian Italian had completely upended his world, and it only took her two weeks. Perhaps more as a testament to his pride than anything, he had to admit that she reminded him a little of himself. Smart, sharp, and always knew just what to say. In a weird way, Detective Desarian had saved him. It was clear his career and entire life were out of control, and it would have all come down at some point. Perhaps it was better that she helped it topple when she did. Now, here was an opportunity for him to thank her for that. Okay, I'll come with you. You'll take me to LASD holding, right? I don't want to do FBI. Not yet. I can take you to LASD right now, but you will transfer when the feds want you. Is that fair? Girardi nodded. He looked outside and could see just the beginning of the sunrise. He hadn't realized how long this day had been. The time had come to take a rest. Hope you got another pair of cuffs. These big arms won't make it that far. I'm not putting the best gang cop in the San Gabriel Valley in cuffs, replied Dilly, with a smile that let Girardi know it might just all work out. Somehow, someway. I'll lead you down, then transfer you to a deputy who will take you to Temple City for holding. 
She put a hand on the big man's shoulder and added, Thanks, G. At least tell me I'm the biggest the rest of your career. Tell me I did that for you. You most definitely are. But I'm thanking you for everything else. You made me a better cop. And you showed me the price of losing purpose. I just want you to know that a lot of good will come from the mistakes. Whatever I go on to do, that's in part because of you. And I take that responsibility very seriously. All Girardi could do was smile, the words having touched a part of him that he almost never showed the world. He put his hands on his head and prepared to officially be taken into custody. Before Dilly opened the door, she began what she had admittedly imagined and practiced on her first drive out to BP Police Station, back when she was foolish enough to think this would be a quick case. Although she trusted Lieutenant Girardi enough to not place him in cuffs, at least not immediately, she knew he was just wily enough to cause a stir for improper procedure. So with just a bit of leaking pride, she began, You have the right to remain silent. And that's it. That's the Bad Boys of Baldwin Park PD. I really hope you enjoyed it. I hope you had fun trying to guess who the killers were and how the gangland politics would end up. Really enjoyed writing the character, Detective Desarian. Um, absolutely will return. Already have a few cases that I want to give her for a new chapter, perhaps a full novel next. And that will end Matsus Denza Season 2. Thank you so much for listening every week. I really enjoyed this season. I think my writing is getting better, so I hope you guys enjoyed it more than Matsus Denza 1, if you haven't. Make sure go check back and listen to Monster Denza Season 1. still available. And also make sure you check out my book, Angie's Move, on Amazon. It's uh, You can get it on Kindle, and you can get it in print. So um, if you're enjoying this writing, definitely check it out and keep spreading the word. Again, so much fun making this season. I really hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Monster Denza 3 will be here before you know it. And uh, once again, I cannot say it enough. Thank you for listening. This entire podcast doesn't exist if no one's listening to it, so... Um, as I build the audience, I am very appreciative of everybody who tunes in week by week. I will be back very soon. Thank you. Thank you once again.